In the year 1916, an Easter Monday fell. Our Galway boys did eyes and for battle did prepare. With Captain Mellows by their side, he led our Galway men. Saying, now unite and we will fight for Aaron's cause again. When the rising of 1916 is mentioned, one almost automatically thinks of Dublin and the GPO. This is very understandable because it was in Dublin that the only extensive fighting took place. But we must remember that the rising was not planned for the capital only, the Dublin fighting was to be part, the principal part, of a nationwide insurrection, for various reasons which we need not now discuss, reasons which included the confusion arising out of MacNeil's countermanding order on Easter Sunday. The plans for uprisings in the provinces largely fell through, but not completely. There were outbreaks in different parts of the country, and the principal one of these was in Galway, where the Irish volunteers were under the command of Liam Mellows. The story of the rising in Galway may not have attached to it all the glamour, all the tragic glamour one associates with the fighting and the loss of life in Dublin. In the Galway episode, there wasn't a great deal of actual combat, but the volunteers, upwards of a thousand of them, who mobilised and marched that week to the Model Farm and later to my old castle and Lime Park, they had no way of knowing that this would be the case. The important fact is that they came out anxious to fight and willing to die. On Easter Tuesday morning, a day I remember well, the blackbird war warbled merrily through woodied vale and dell, along the road and through the fields, and over hills and crags, the Galway boys went marching or rallying to their flags. With but shotguns in their hands, yet prepared to do or die, to meet a well-trained enemy, we'll have another try. That bit of a song about Easter week in Galway was quoted for us by Jim Fury of Castle Gar, who was himself out in 1916. There are very many more people still alive who were involved. Stephen Jordan of Athenry brings us back to the days of preparation when Mellows and Alf Monaghan were organising the Irish volunteers in the Galway area. In the middle of this work, in 1915, Mellows was arrested and spent three months in Mountjoy Jail. Stephen Jordan takes up the story at this point. On his release, a demonstration of welcome was organised and held in Athenry in November 1915. The demonstration, at the demonstration, up to 700 volunteers paraded, carrying arms. The meeting was held in the sports field Armed sentries were posted on all the entrances and the Royal Irish Constabulary were not allowed to enter the field. After the meeting, Liam Millers continued on the work until Christmas when he went home for a few weeks' holidays. After his holidays, he went to Westport for a week or two and then returned to Athenroy, where he was again arrested and deported. The work of keeping the organisation fell to the Athenroy Company and by now, Ably assisted by Clareton Bridge and Killinian companies, things were kept going until the word of the rebellion arrived. On the receipt of same, 
all men fell into work of preparation. About 70 mobilized in Athenry on Easter Sunday. And when the countermand and order came, the Athenry company had to carry out all the dispatch work, taking the order to outlying districts and companies. And on Monday, when the order came definitely for the rising, they had again to go to work to carry out this order and to mobilize and at the same time make their own preparations, a thing which they did, and on Tuesday they mobilized in full strength. Stephen Jordan was speaking from his own memory and also um, consulting a written report made later by the late Larry Lardner, who was Commandant of the Volunteers in the Athenry area. But we'll go back a bit again. Liam Mellows was the key figure in the organisation of the Irish Volunteers in Galway and in the Rising itself. His co-organiser and his right-hand man during the Rising was Alvio Monaghan, Alf Monaghan, who was a Belfast man. Early in 1916, deportation orders were issued against uh, Mellows and Monaghan. Alf Monaghan succeeded in uh, avoiding the execution of the order, but Mellows was deported to England and was sent, not to jail of course, but to stay in a private house and was quarantined within a certain area. When the plans for the Rising were made, it was decided to organise the escape of Mellows from deportation and bring him back to Ireland. Alf Monaghan tells us how this was done. Liam's brother went over to England and took Liam's place in the lodgings where he was. But when the lodging house man, or the man of the house, uh, uh, an English-born Irish man, who was well, uh, gave Liam great advice about what they suffered in their in his young days, and how we should be satisfied, as he said, the way things are now. Uh, evidently, he had a bad time, his family had a bad time in England when he was young. But when he saw Barney Mellows and knew it wasn't Liam, he advised him for his sake to clear out too. Anyhow, Liam then, I think he came from England through Glasgow because he arrived in Belfast dressed as a priest. And the priest in Glasgow who gave him his suit of clothes was a big man. And Liam wasn't. But peculiarities like that are not noticed on the priests on the mission. Very often they haven't very good clothes. And he arrived in Belfast and from that to Dublin and arrived in Galway. They, I think it was on Thursday night, Wednesday or Thursday night before the arrival, before Easter Sunday. Another key figure, and in certain ways as vital to the volunteer movement and to the rising in Galway as Mellows himself, was a priest, Father Harry Feeney, who was a native of Two Mile Ditch near Castlegar and later curate in Clarin Bridge. Matty Nyland of Kilcolgan and Clarin Bridge, himself an old 1916 man, was constantly in the company of Father Feeney in those days. He came to Clarin Bridge in the... Uh... Early, early part of 1915 and um, he inquired if we had uh, a volunteer company in the parish. He was assured that we had a company of Irish volunteers and he entered into the organisation 
and the training of the company from the moment he arrived and continued onto and through the rising of Easter week. When Father Feeney was in funds, after the Easter and Christmas Jews had been collected, we would go then to either, either to Limerick or to Dublin and purchase their guns, ammunition, and uh, general equipment for the volunteers here. And also in Dublin, of course, we used to go visit St. Indus and see Padraig Pierce and his brother Willie. And then from that to Michal O'Hanrahan, who was quartermaster at the time. And from him, uh, we usually got or purchased revolvers, ammunition, and a few rifles. Today, we take the Rising of 1916 for granted. It's a historical fact, and in the course of time, historical facts slip easily into their context. Uh, we're inclined to think of in history that because something did happen, nothing else could have happened. But in 1914, 15 and 16, the idea of armed insurrection was something that the majority of the Irish people hardly thought of, even though there were, there were great survivals of the Fenian tradition and the Fenian spirit. Monsignor Tom Fahey, later professor of classics in University College Galway, brings out this point when telling of his first meeting in Ballinasloe with the young Liam Mellows. I was in Ballinasloe in 1914. I was a professor in the college that time, um, uh, in the Old Pines, as it was called then, after present Garberley College now. And uh, 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 this um, slight, fair-haired young man came in one day to visit us. I think he would receive Father Connolly, Father Connolly's dead now, Mr Gaffney. Uh, he was a professor there, and he was telling us, and, uh, he was preparing all trouble with his camp I was speaking on, but I remember asking him definitely on, on that occasion, do you really mean to fight? And he said, yes, with determination and, and uh, his, his appearance and voice. Uh, I, I was really surprised because our, we, our generation, oh, we were uh, fighting uh, with a gun, or a rebellion, open rebellion or something more or less. <laughs> that we never dreamt of. But other people were dreaming of insurrection and the dream became a reality in Easter week 1916. It's an interesting point that the Galway volunteers seem to be better informed about the plan for the Easter Sunday Rising than their Dublin comrades. Alf Monaghan takes up the story again. Well, our adjutant, the brigade adjutant, Eamon Corbett, uh, from Clare Gall, from Clarin Bridge, yeah, Clarin Bridge. Uh, he met, was at a council meeting in Scolena uh, with Pierce and the others, 
uh, on the, the, the Monday after Palm Sunday. And of course, that night he brought, and you may say that on Tuesday, all the officers of every company knew that the rising was fixed for Sunday, and all the men definitely knew on Wednesday, because they were all advised to go to confession on Saturday, Holy Communion on Sunday, and every local company was expected to be in position at the local police barracks at seven, half past seven on Sunday evening and take the police by surprise. In other words, uh, to a great extent, then, the, the Galway volunteers knew about the rising before most of the volunteers in Dublin. Well, thousands of men in, in Galway must have known about it because they, they were all under orders from that time. Thousands of people knew it. Well, now, when the, the Easter Sunday came then and the, the mobilisation started? Well, first of all, do you see, uh, Mrs Frank Fahey arrived in Galway, uh, Nathan Rye, I think it was Holy Thursday, with the definite news of the time and the place. But then, uh, on Sunday morning, the, the men, uh, of course, all went to confession on Saturday, much to the amazement of some of the priests, who were surprised at such huge numbers of men coming in. And uh, one priest I know uh, well, and he asked one of the men, he said, there are terrible other men coming to confession today. He says, what is it about? So this man told him, and the tears came to the eyes of the priest. He says, thank God there are men in Ireland yet. I knew that priest well. Well, uh, then the countermanding order happened, you see. Now, the ship was sunk on Friday, the German ship was sunk on Friday, and the countermanding order was brought. Now, the... Uh, Who brought uh, the countermanding order to oh, Galway? Uh, uh, a, pr a priest came in a motor bicycle on Sunday morning to Rathen Rye, and uh, it was very hard to get word around all the companies uh, at that time. And there was one company actually in position outside the barracks when they got their countermanding order. And Sunday afternoon, uh, a man called Egan, I believe, I was told that was his name, a man called Egan arrived uh, on Sunday afternoon, uh, Easter Sunday afternoon, and he had a word from Pierce that the maneuvers are postponed for the present. And then on Monday, uh, after a Monday, about one o'clock or so, Nurse O'Farrell arrived. And uh, she had definite news that they were gone out in Dublin at 12 o'clock. I think she arrived after about one. But then, of course, the men had to be mobilised. And uh, they were through the country. And the meantime, the police had got word and all the small barracks, you know, there are terrible lot of small barracks in Galway, you know, yes. they're what they call uh, blockhouses or no, what not, small huts like, mm -hmm. as well as small barracks, and all the small barracks were evacuated, uh, and the police went into the town. And in a, an account that Liam Mellows wrote for an American paper, we had 600 miles without any garrison, 600 square miles without any garrison, and uh, that was our territory. 
There were a number of actual engagements on the Tuesday when the individual companies of volunteers got on the march and converged on the model farm, or the farmyard as it's generally called, at Athen Rye. One such engagement was in the Ornmore, Cardmore area and involved the Castle Gar Company. We met some veterans of this company, including James Fury, John Ryan, Pat Broderick, John and James Fahey, and Michael Curran of Galway, speaking for them, gave us an account of the incident. At Easter time, 1916, on Easter Sunday, the company was mobilised at Briar Hill and instructed as to their part in the following week. But that night, all the men proceeded to their own homes. On Monday morning, the company again paraded at Briar Hill with all available equipment. The company went to billets in the village of Kiltulla, Castle Gare, for that night. On Easter Sunday morning at four o'clock, the <coughs> company marched, the destination being at Rye, and to meet the Clear Galway Company en route at Cairnmore. Prior to the company's arrival at Cairnmore, two scouts came up and informed the officer commanding that the RIC contingent from Galway City with troops from Renmore barracks were on the same route in motor vehicles. The company had to make hurried arrangements to engage the enemy and the men were deployed to suitable positions to surround, if possible, such enemy forces. A member of the common Amman arrived at the Christopher Hill and signalled the near approach of the police and the military. The RIC and military went in single file across fields near where the company men were posted and whom they had seen. The RIC opened fire. The volunteers held their fire to get a shorter range for their shotguns. A number of volunteers had just piked. Both sides now engaged and firing was rapid. Some of the RIC from another local station and who controlled the immediate area became bolder at this time and one of their number shouted for a surrender. There was no question of a surrender, but the RIC man who held, led the demand was shot dead. Firing still continued until the RIC missed their dead comrade and another wounded man. This seemed to deaden their activities and they withdrew, leaving the field to the volunteers. The RIC and the military were accompanied by a hurriedly formed band of special constables from the merchants and others of Galway, specially enlisted in Galway City. The RIC, military and specials, returned to Galway. The Castle Gare Company then reformed and with the Clear Galway Company proceeded to the fairmyard at Athenry, where Captain <coughs> Gail Mellis took charge. Another veteran of those historic 1916 days in Galway was Pórigo Faha, Pórig Fahi, who lives in Talaira near Ardrahan in County Galway, but is a native of Lurgan in the parish of Kilbacanty, that's near Gort. Honig Pórigo Faha is Jachim Snehogli, Frey Conranagwelge, Vibantige Riebel, Shagunra, Agus Kashe Tamil, Sukhalashta Dorvikede, Agus an Iyashin Kashin a Blianta Father, Marwuntor Gwailge, Hart Er Khandanagailve. Parik Fahey was himself involved in the mobilization of the Galway volunteers uh, for the Rising, 
But first we'll hear him evoke the spirit of the whole rising in Galway in a recitation which has to do especially with the Castle Gar men about whom Michael Corden was speaking. Parik Fahey tells us about Brian Malloy and the boys of Castle Gar. Tis joyous spring, the wild birds sing, the rain has ceased to fall, and dawn's bright ray acclaims the day when came Limelis call. Then loud resounds the slogan sound, proclaiming freedom's war, and Brian Malloy has heard the cry ring out through Castle Gair. The elders grey, the youngsters gay, deserters there are none. This lad would like an antique pike, his dad that rusty gun. The champion souls, the stalwart moors, prepared for strenuous war, as Brian Malai arrays with joy in the boys of Castle Gair. Although they knew no aid came through, the odd rocks neath the wave, yet they would be, they must be free, if only in their graves. Young baby Dugan and the Newells, and many a hurling star, resolved to die with Brian Malai and the boys of Castlegar. The RIC began to flee, when specials all had fled, their leader lay stretched on the clay, pretending he was dead. His comrades bold in death like hold, with many a bruise and scar. No more to spy and Brian Malai and the boys of Castle Gar. And Karn moor their gaily souls in the banner of Sinn Fein. And on the bragging British braves, no vestige now remain. Unto my oath, the victor strode without a stain or scar, where hail with joy is Brian Malai and the boys of Castle Gar. From Onavay until Achray are rebels to the crown, no dastard foe his face dare show from Gart to Galway town. And we were free as border be till closed the Easter war. There's hue and cry, bands Brian Malloy, the boy from Castle Gair. Though poor the fair and cold the air, his mind was free from care. Till bitter spies with honeyed lies had lured him from his lair. Then peelers high from every side on bicycle and car, and to Mount Joy dragged Brian Malai, the pride of Castlegar. The sentence death, although revoked, and his lung he must endure, the hunger's pain. The fog, the rain, and the rigours of Dartmoor. There came a change, they loosed his chains, and in a janting care, mid shouts of joy, brave Brian Malai comes home to Castle Gare. 
the spirit waved, the rising raised, a deluge swept the land, which murdered gangs and blackened hands were powerless to withstand. Should bigots strive this land to rive, our freedom's pathway bare, we many a boy like Brian Malloy and the boys of Castlegare. Uh, that piece was spoken by Porigo Fahe of Tulaira. Now, of course, Porig Fahe didn't have to do with the Castlegar area. His uh, company of volunteers was in the Gort, Kilbakenty side, that was in South Galway. And um, he never really got a, a chance to join the main body of uh, the volunteers in Athenry after Easter Monday, because on Easter Monday he was sent by Captain Liam Meadows to Kinvara to Father Meehan, who was very sympathetic with the cause. And uh, he wanted, Liam Meadows wanted uh, Father Meehan to be quartermaster for the whole assembled force. But when Tom O'Dea and Porigo Fahey got to Father Meehan's house in Kinvara, he wasn't there and the, the town was uh, full of RIC and they found themselves um, accosted by the sergeant and another uh, member of the RIC who were armed with rifles and uh, they were unarmed so um, they didn't have much of a chance. But we let uh, Porig Fahey take up the story. Now, previous to that, he struck me seven rows of the machine and the rifle. Was, uh, he fired on the car and he put a bullet through the hood and he came back then and he put a, he put a rifle to my back and he gave me ten seconds and started counting. We went to the barracks in Kinvera and they took my coat and everything and there was a great, great many, many policemen in it and I was put into the lockup. But uh, after a while, they did a policeman come and he said, the, the rebels have a, a machine gun outside every barrack in the county Galway. I don't know whether it is a Magsim gun or a Gatling gun. <laughs> and uh, Erdrahan, Barracks are to be evacuated, and they're coming in here. And as soon as they arrive here, we have to evacuate this barrack also, and we have to all to go to guard. So they rushed me over, and they had a car waiting there, and they went in great panic on towards guard. And the horse gave up, but just at my own churchyard. They had to wait there until he recovered as well. But they were in a, in a terrible panic. And when the other barracks then were evacuated as well, Tobor and Petersville. And Matt Nyland of Kilcolgan had further details about the attack on and the, the evacuation of RIC barracks. On the morning of Tuesday, we marched to Clareton Bridge and there attacked the RIC station. The attack was not a military success and after a certain 
time of exchange of shots, Meadows asked me to take a dozen men on, this, on the road leading to Gort, the object of holding up any assistance coming from a strong RIC barracks in Kilcolgan, about a mile away from Clayton Bridge, to the assistance of the others below. This I did. And um, three or four members of the Kilcolgan garrison came along one by one. All were captured and taken prisoner and sent down to Meadows to, H to the headquarters in Clayton Bridge at the old school again. One of them resisted and was wounded in the process and disarmed. All the Irish volunteer companies east of the Corrib who came out eventually assembled in the model farm at Athenrye. There were about a thousand in all, but the arms position was very bad, as Alf Monaghan explains. The point was, we had very little arms for them. I think we had only, uh, let's see now, we had 35 rifles only and 350 shotguns. Well, you see, we were to get 3,000 of the guns from the German ship. And uh, the, uh, my brother was one of the three men drowned at Kilorglan. And they were going to carry to the uh, wireless station there to draw the, uh, send a message out that the Germans were attacking something in the west of Scotland in order to draw off any ships from Ireland. But on, for the unfortunate, as John Mitchell called it, British Providence happened, and uh, the unfortunate accident. Well, then they had what, arranged... Uh, what was your brother's uh, Christian name? Charlie. Charlie Monaghan. Charlie. Carl. Very Carl. Uh, uh, well, they had arrangements with the railway men to bring the arms from Kerry right along the line and distribute the arms at various places, and we were to get 3,000 guns. When you knew you weren't getting the guns, did you keep all, want to keep all the men that did well, turn out? No. We tried to reduce the men as much as possible. First of all, we told all married men to go home and all anybody under 18, because there were quite a lot of young fellas, and any young fellas or anybody that people thought would, should go home, that maybe the only son or something, because we... We knew that having not having got the arms, that a big uh, battle was hardly possible, and the only thing that we could uh, do was to keep the uh, keep the forces, the English forces, from concentrating on Dublin, and we hoped that every county had done that. Galway then was to get three thousand guns from the German ship the Oud, and this may seem a lot for one area. But as Alf Monahan also told us, the idea was that the volunteers from northern counties would eventually tie up with the Galway men 
and Alf had an interesting sidelight on this northern aspect of the story. In regard to Belfast, the men there were standing by all night, every night during the week. And the most interesting point is that the boatmen on Loch Ney, there was a man slept in his boat every night to be ready. A man slept in every boat every night for the week to be ready to bring the men across the loch into Chiron. On Wednesday, the whole group, about 600 men, moved from the department farmyard in Athenry to my old castle a couple of miles away. The problem of feeding this large number was always a worry. We had our men reduced to about 600, you see. And uh, it was a bit of a problem. But it was remarkable how the people uh, sent in supplies of food. We certainly got plenty of what to call those big, huge, big, round uh, cakes, griddle cakes now. And uh, we had a couple of bread vans whose drivers very willingly surrendered. And uh, we also had uh, uh, killed some bullocks belonging to the richest people around the country. Uh, and uh, in, in my old castle, the common man did a great job in cooking. Uh, but uh, it's all the same, it was a bit of a problem. Jim Barrett of Athen Rye introduced a certain light relief into the story when telling us about a court-martial later in which this question of food was brought up. At that period, there was 13 members of the Athen Rye Battalion that were court-martialed in Dublin when they yes. got 12 months. 12 months, yes. Oh, belonging to the Athen Rye Battalion. Mm -hmm. I had a brother, one of them, he said. Yeah. And he got 12 months for what I did. <laughs> got 12 months for what I did. What year was that? No, that was 16. 16. 16. Yeah, yeah. Because I went to, I was sent to get rations in a pub out the country and I went and I got the rations. Tea and sugar and things and I got them and the, there was a barrack convenient and the publican went to the barrack and he told that uh, Barris was the leader. Because I questioned the shopkeeper, I said I want to get some tea and sugar. And so uh, anything I get now, I'll give you a receipt for it. If, uh, this was from my own. No, from my own. Oh, yeah. If we lose, if we lose uh, our life, well, you have nothing to lose, only the tea and sugar. And if I live, says I will, I'll guarantee you'll get paid for it. On Thursday night and early on Friday morning, volunteers moved again from my own to another big house a few miles further south, Lime Park. But the end was fast approaching. Monsignor Tom Fahey told us about events of the end of the week. He was a professor in Maynooth at the time, but was on his Easter holidays at his home near Athenry. At the end of the week, then, uh, Father Feeney particularly asked me whether I go to Galway to find out what the ecclesiastical authorities were saying there, because he had made no preparation when he was leaving his parish. He just, so, uh, I was glad afterwards to be able to tell him how pleased to... Uh, Bishop was here, they had a chaplain with him. By the way, as a further example of the Bishop's sympathy, Alf Monaghan told us that when the rising was over, the British military commander approached the same Bishop of Galway to have disciplinary action taken against Father Feeney, but the Bishop refused. Father Feeney was later parish priest of Shrule, where he died. But Monsignor Fahey continues the story of the end of the rising. Ingall, right here in that fit that I heard about Dublin, the in Dublin, how they uh, all over there, and they were making preparations now, I think the Sherwood Foresters were on their way to the west, and 
Uh, there were four swords that came from other parts. And I went back to report this to um, people in my old. On the way, um, they had heard information, and they were on the, they'd left my old on to Lime Park. And uh, I think about two o'clock in the morning when they went in there, uh, I was trying to persuade Liam Manners to, to uh, disband as many as there was no chance now, whatever. DMs, we let me get away. So. Even very was very reluctant. He said he'd asked these men to come with him. He never asked them to leave. And he wanted to fight it out there and then. We told him what folly it was. There was a meeting anyhow. They found the officers and the majority decided they should disband. Alf Monaghan gave us his recollections of this visit of Father Fahey and of the eventual disbandment. Liam wasn't, and some of the officers there were not for... They, they, for giving up at all, but they were, uh, had an idea of uh, arming the small group with, with what guns we had and keeping on a guerrilla war. And Father Fahey then asked leave to put the case before the men. And he did very nicely, and he told them the situation, and he said, uh, that his suggestion was that they should disperse. But says he, hide your guns, it'll be another day. And he thinks he was very prophetic in that. Well, well then, when Ed, oh, it was a very sorrowful dispersal, that. That was very sorrowful altogether. And some of the men nearly broke down at having go in. They all came along and shook hands with us. Well, Liam and I were strangers in the country, and we didn't... Uh, well, it was dangerous, I thought, like to go and impose ourselves on any people who would be bullied by the police. And we decided to go off to outside the county a bit. Up to, and uh, the captain of the Arthur Rye Company, Frank Hines, was a married man. We weren't married at the time. Liam was never married. But uh, uh, Frank Hines insisted on coming with us. Now, the escape of Liam Mellows after this is a saga in itself. The, the three Liam Mellows, Frank Hines and Alf Monaghan, came across from Lyon Park over towards Kilbakenty direction, and they came to Ballycahillan, which is in the parish of Kilbakenty, and, uh, well, Porrick Fahey was able to tell us more about this. When they came to Ballycahillan, Patsy Carlos went to Sean, my brother, in Lurigan. He used to stay there. And uh, Sean brought them over a cake of bread and he said he'd come again in the night either himself or Michal so it was Michal went and Liam said I trust you now to bring us to a safe place very well says Michal so when it was dark he brought them across the risks to Drummond and he brought them into the house of William Blanchard then on Monday morning, Liam put on William Blanche's warning and he went up to Mike Hoods. Mike wasn't the volunteer as well. They lived in the very top of, of Dirty Mountains. There are many more episodes in this escape uh, saga, but eventually uh, Liam Mellows got to uh, North Clare to the house of Corgan Maloney and uh, later escaped to Limerick and Cork and Liverpool. But this part of the story, this fascinating part, was told to us by a person who was involved, a very well-known nun in the Convent of Mercy in Ennis. I, I was a young nun, and I went back from the convent to the school one evening. 
It must have been May, because the forget-me-nots were in bloom. I'd say it'd been 1917. And there were two priests in the hall. One whom I knew, and the other a strange man with a washproof coat on, and I thought perhaps he's a boy on the run. So I asked them to sit down, so they sat down, and we chatted away about everything, and I teased the priest whom I knew about different things, and finally they said, would you lend us a habit? Well, I was a very young nun, and I thought it was for a play. Well, I said, I must ask my superior. So I came to the convent to find she had gone to the county home. And I went back then, and I said, uh, I'm afraid you have to go to the county home. And we were crossing the room, and I said, perhaps you want to save one of the boys? Oh, they said, yes. Oh, I'll give it to you. I said, certainly. Mm-hmm. So down we sat, and as you see, I'm very tall. Liam wasn't so tall. And I had to get the habit tucked up, got the measurements and everything. They went away and said to send the parcel down to Carmody's Hotel. So uh, a lady who was in the school and myself then got the habit, got the whole thing ready, and we used to wear a veil over our face in those days, a gossamer veil to cover the face, got it all ready and packed. And the lady then went out, and as she was going down the town, Father Michael Crowe said, God prosper your work. So she went to the hotel, and I had a little note, is everything all right? And got the reply back, everything okay, God bless you, TB. That's all I knew. So I heard no more then. Next day, the priest whom I knew came in and told me. This was Liam Mellows. That day, I went to the county home, and Dr. Cochran came along, and he said, we met two nuns going to Limerick today. So my fault, I said. So that was that. But mother came behind me at dinner and she said, uh, Father Crow said, if anybody asked you if there were nuns out driving, say yes. I didn't say anything. So time went on anyhow. After about a month, Father Tom Burke, who was the second priest of Kilshanny, he died in Kilshanny, he was at that time secretary to the Bishop of Galway. And Father Tom Meehan, who was also a Galway priest, brought back my habit and told me the story. And the story was that Liam was trying to get over to his aunt in Galway, in uh, Scarf from Galway. And he hid in the Glendree Hills and was kept there, I think, for six months by Gog and Maloney and fed there. This priest got a letter to come on to Ennis and collect the habit. Now, the night they collected the habit, they, had, they went out to Dura's, the priest's house there. And the following day, they dressed Miss Maloney as a nun and Liam Mellows as a nun. And they drove to Limerick. And from that, they went on. Well, now, I knew no more until Liam came back from America and he finished the story. So he came and he thanked me, and he told me, you know, Sadie, when I sat down on the railway station in Limerick, I put my legs out that way, you know, <laughs> you see? <laughs> and other things. Now, he told me then that when they got out at Cork, there was a lady there to meet him, and she didn't know which of them to kiss. One was a lady and the other was a gentleman. So uh, they went on then to the Dominican priest's priory, and there he got into the priors, to the Dominican habit. And he stayed there then until Monteith joined him. And he and Monteith dressed as bride and bridegroom and went over to Liverpool and stayed in a hotel in Liverpool until the hue and cry went out that they were there. So they both got onto a ship as stokers and went to America. And then when he came back, that was that. God bless our men from Galway who took their guns in hand and went on the road to old my own to fight